Um, Dave here, and yeah, we just pray that you speak through him, Lord, and we just pay attention, Lord, just send your presence down, Lord, and just, yeah, all distractions, Lord, just, we pray that you just get rid of them. In your name, Lord, amen. Thank you. All right, so here's, um, here's where I want to go. This, this was fun, wasn't it? I enjoyed it. Um, there's nothing really to do with what I'm talking about, but it's a really important lesson. I want to make sure you get it. Oh, and I'm, I'm low tech today, so we'll turn this off. Um, right here, when she's, on the, when she's on the board, right, and she says to him, I love you, and then she says, I'll never let go, right? And then what happens after that? She lets go, which I know is slightly ironic. But then what happens after that? She's rescued, and she lives this life, like, for 80 years, right? She gets married. She has kids. She has grandkids. And then the end of the movie is this 80 years later where she's there. She's still got this diamond, which was the heart of the ocean, right, or something along those lines. She's still got this, which represents, like, this thing that she's holding on to, and she climbs up on the rail, and she drops it back in the water, and, you know, there, there's sort of, like, this moment where she kind of lets go because she's about to go and meet him again, right? But she's going to meet him, not the guy that she was married to for all those years that gave her kids and all of those grandkids and all of those things. So I'm walking out of this movie, which I saw on Valentine's Day with my wife, who was at that time my fiance, and I'm like... This, it was a great movie, it was powerful, it was all of those things. And we're in the car on the way home, and she said, I just want you to know I'm not holding on to anything else in my heart. And I thought, I know absolutely nothing about women, was the, was the thought that I had. Like, I'm watching this movie, and I enjoyed it, and thought it was cool, and thought the fighting, and, you know, all of that nonsense was fun. But here was this, you know, that, like, what my wife took away from it was, like, well, and what I learned in that moment was, oh my gosh, like the human heart is able to hold on to something for 80 years, even after you're married, you have kids and all of these other sorts of things. We can hide that sort of stuff inside of our hearts and sort of, instead of letting go and fully giving ourselves to the um, person who we're married to, et cetera, et cetera. Did you follow me at all on what I'm saying right now? That's dangerous, isn't it? I mean, I love the movie. I don't want to detract from the movie at all. I just wanted to point out the absolute danger of sort of holding some things in our hearts that can seriously damage and affect the, the, the next thing that we're going and doing. That's why the scriptures say, above all else, guard your heart, right? All right, that was just two cents. That was gravy. That was free, like, unlike everything else that you're paying for. Okay, um, so in the spirit of um, catastrophes happening and survival situations existing, I thought we would do a couple of um, exercises. What I want to do is I would like you to break off into your um, outreach teams. And I would like you to each grab one of these. And what you're going to do, the, the, the scenario is written at the top. I'm going to read it to you so that I do not need to answer questions because what I'd like you to do is get outside of earshot with each other. There's plenty of places to sit. I just don't want everybody in here. Uh, this scenario, a small aircraft crashes into shark-infested waters of the Pacific Ocean. There's damage to the aircraft on impact with the water, which causes the electrical systems within to be damaged. The resulting radio failure means that no Mayday message can be sent. Of the 16 passengers on the plane, there are nine survivors. 
The location of the crash is approximately one and a half days from the nearest land. The life raft on one side of the airplane can be used. However, there's only room for four persons in it. You must reach a decision at which four people can enter the life raft. You have approximately 30 minutes to reach this decision before the aircraft sinks. However, you only have 15. So there are nine survivors. There are details on the nine survivors. I would like you to break off into your groups quickly, find a place quickly, and decide which four of these nine are going in the life raft. All right? They said that everybody, when it comes to making a change or making a, a switch in their life, has two competing, um, two competing factors, two voices, if you will, inside of them. And the premise that they started with in this book is people think change is hard. Yes, change is difficult. People don't like to change generally. However, how many people end up getting married? How many people end up having kids? I mean, those are colossal changes, and they're chosen by those people, yes? So how come, on the one hand, we think people don't like the, to change, and on the other hand, people choose colossal change every day? How do you, how do you reconcile the difference between those two things? These guys came up with this analogy. They said that inside of everybody, there is an elephant and a person riding on top of that elephant, and in order to change, you need to convince both the elephant and the person on top of the elephant that a change needs to take place. Okay, now the person on top of the elephant is usually the one that's easier to convince with rational arguments, with all sorts of, you know, like, here's the 15 reasons why you need to change. And the person says, yep, we need to change. The elephant, on the other hand, is not convinced at all by rational arguments. They're convinced by what's the next step and usually are significantly persuaded through emotions or feelings and things along those lines. So, for example, when men ask women to marry them, which is still the usual procedure, they typically do not go up, kneel down with a ring and say, you know... I've looked at our individual tax returns and I've realized that we can save a significant amount of money <laughs> if we get married. Not only that, but think of all the money that we're going to be saving on rent. Not only that, but we can share rides together, we can talk to each other and have a number of different sort of connections that will personally and emotionally benefit us. And so as I've looked at all of the data that's available... I think that this contract that we can into would be advantageous for both of us. Very few, and nobody who gets married would actually say that. That would be cause, grounds for not getting married if somebody did that for you girls. Just heads up, you know, just my personal opinion. No, 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 no. The guy gets down on one knee and holds out the ring and says something to the effect of, I love you. I want to be with you and connect with you and be devoted to you for the rest of our lives. In the analogy, he is putting some peanuts in front of an elephant saying, I want the biggest, most influential part of you, this enormous emotional um, willpower that you have, that's what I'm going to tug at. The, the guy on top, the writer of the elephant is just going along for the ride at this point. Of course, all of those other things are there, but it's not even in her mind. It's not even in his mind at that moment. Yes, are you following me? Okay. The problem is usually when we try and get people to change, we just talk to the writer. 
How were you trying to convince people in the first exercise? Were you trying to go after the writer or were you trying to go after the elephant in that conversation? How are you making life and death, death decisions there? Which one were you appealing to? The writer? So you're trying to talk to people's heads. This is why this needs to be done this way. How many people felt like there was serious emotional something involved in, as well in, in how they were trying to persuade? Yeah, there's a bit of both at play. Yeah, Ian. Absolutely. Absolutely, because with some people, the writer has a heck of a lot of control over the elephant on certain decisions. And so it's easy for the writer to convince the elephant which way to go. But on other decisions, it's extremely hard to convince the writer for, to convince the elephant a different way to go. And it's much more complicated. I gave a very, very brief introduction. That's why they wrote a whole book. Didn't have me come and pimp it out for them for, for 30 seconds. So we need to pull at both things at the same time. We need to create a rationale, a reason, a set for somebody to make the decision that they're going to make. And I want to show you how God set up the universe to operate that way. Can somebody simply read for me Genesis 1, 1, and 2? was hovering over the water. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. The, the Hebrew words there are tohu and bohu, tohu being formless, bohu being void, tofu being tasteless. And he, um, he says that they're formless and void. Darkness um, is everywhere, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep, the waters. Yes? Okay. Then what does God create on day one? And light and dark. What does God create on day two? Waters where? Expanse, sky, waters in the sky, and waters on the earth. Yes? Okay, you guys got it? Light and dark, waters in the sky, waters on the earth. What does he create on day three? Land and water. He separates those two things. Yes? Okay. What does he create on day four? Sun, moon, stars. Sun, moon, stars fills the light and the dark, yes? The sun is for the day. The moon is for the night, the dark. So day one, he creates a form. The earth was formless and void, right? Day one, he creates a form, light and dark, Day four, he creates something to fill both forms, sun and moon, okay? What does he create day five? Ocean and birds. What did he create on day two? Water in the sky, water on the earth. What does he do on day five? Puts birds in the sky, puts birds in the water. Day two, he creates a form of the earth, water on the earth, and the form of the sky. The earth was formless and void. First, he creates the form. Day five, he fills the form, puts birds in the sky, puts fish in the sea. You following me here? Okay. Day six, what does he create? Livestock, animals, and people. 
What does he create on day three? Land. He creates the form of land on day three, and then in the parallel day, day six, fills the form. All right? You guys follow exactly how this parallel works? Days one, two, and three, he creates forms. In days four, five, and six, he fills the voids. The earth was formless and void. He creates the forms, and he fills the voids. Let me tell you what we do so often in these exercises show it just a little bit and you know we we can talk about it more but we're we're out of time and it's it's break time but what we do so often when we try and persuade people is we jump straight to trying to fill forms that we haven't created we jump straight to the idea of let me give you a bunch of reasons let me give you a bunch of stuff let me tell you about this let me go through this list and you know give you these arguments about why we need to you know keep this thing and not keep that thing why this person needs to live and why that person doesn't need to live but we've never taken the time to actually figure out what the forms are why what what would be a general category of why you think this you know of why you think people should live What do you think is a general category of what the most necessary survival sorts of items are going to be? Are we staying here or are we going to try and walk out? We never take the time to actually work on the form. We jump straight to filling the void. And what I'm I'm suggesting is that the way that people change, the way that the universe is set up, is that we can't just jump to filling the void, we have to start with the form. That's the way the earth was created, that's the way people change, that's the way life works. There is a reason why, there is an assessment, there is is something in the way that somebody else thinks that is why they think that. First figure that out, first figure out what their form is, their base, their foundation, their starting place. Then you can begin to persuade them with other stuff. Do you guys follow what I was going after there? All right, we'll talk briefly about that later, but let's take a break until 10 till. Oh, you know what? We'll take a break until everybody is done doing their t-shirt order. So please start doing that immediately so that we can get done because it'll take a while for everybody to do it. About his character. Is there anything in there at all about his heart? Do you see something here? Do you see what I'm seeing? Why does the scripture make this point that people look at the outward appearance but God looks at the heart? And then it goes and only tells us about his outward appearance and doesn't tell us anything about his heart. Anybody have an idea? Certainly, there's clues, but it doesn't, it's not explicit. I mean, it says he's handsome, he has ruddy features, he's a fine appearance. I mean, it's explicit, whereas... Yeah, maybe you can imply some things about the fact that he was working the field, but ultimately he could have been working the field only because he was ordered to. There's nothing intrinsic about the fact that he was out in the field. There's nothing explicit about it. There's implied. Sure. But he could be a jerk in shepherding a flock. I totally agree, but the passage doesn't go into any of that context, so it doesn't allow us to know if he was a jerk who was shepherding the flock or a nice guy who was shepherding the flock. All we know is that he was shepherding the flock. But yeah. to me, since he said the other brothers that they were like they look good outside but not in the inside, so when he doesn't say that to David, it's like understood that he probably looks good in the inside too. And he says he's handsome, which is just shows us that God likes a pretty face too. I mean, like, sure. All right. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me throw this idea out to you. 
I actually think that even though God looks at the outward appearance, but people look at the heart, we need to recognize the fact that we're leading people. And so we can't make the excuse for ourselves that, well, it doesn't really matter how I present myself because what's really important is my heart. Because how we present ourselves actually matters. How did uh, William Wallace show up to the battle yesterday? Face painted. Why? He was ready for battle. Courage, enthusiasm, community, unity. Yeah, I mean, he, he had war paint on, right? He wanted to show up looking completely different than everybody else. I mean, the blue stood out. It was so contrasting to everything else. He had all these people, you know, in their leather armor, you know, and these sort of dark, dirty farmers and everything like that. And that blue was the shocking blue. And it was so different looking than everything else that anybody saw that it inspired the people who were there. It, made, it turned him into this caricature of himself, that he was this uber warrior who was showing up in order to help save the day. His appearance made a difference in his leadership. He used it in his leadership. It wasn't the only reason he was a leader. It wasn't the only thing that he had going for him, but it was part of what he used. We talked about... Um, in uh, The Incredibles, the mom handed them all a mask. They all had uniforms on, right? What's that about? They look the part. Absolutely. If you're going to be a super, dress like a super, right? They all had the same uniform. They were all part of the same family. They all had a mask. They all needed to hide their identities. But when they looked at each other and you looked at them all, there was this team aspect that you got just because of how they appeared, right? Everybody in here just, I mean, ironically, beautifully, poetically, just order t-shirts, right? Going to look the part. Going to be a part of the same team. There's something about the way that we appear that factors into our leadership. The scriptures are clear. God cares most about the heart. Is there any question about that from this passage? No. Not at all. And clearly, Saul was a tall, good-looking guy. That's it earlier. However, appearances do matter. Which is why the author had to mention it. They didn't go into a big character reference there. They just talked about appearances. Do you know that, um, what's, it, what's the average height for full-grown men? Does anybody know? It, it, I think it's close to 5'10". Do you know what the average height of CEOs in the United States are? Six foot one. Three inches taller than the average height. Why? Because it's just we just naturally we just naturally think that a tall person is a leader. It's just natural inside of us. There are very few there are very few CEOs in the United States of America that are shorter than five foot eight. Who are men? That sucks. I mean, these guys could be every bit as good of a leader, and yet we care so much about appearances naturally as human beings that it's amazing how it just sort of sorts itself out. I mean, that's why Napoleon is the exception to the rule, right? That's why, you know, that's why we, we make mention whenever there's somebody 
who's this great warrior, this great leader, and then we also, and then we throw in there, they probably had a Napoleonic complex or something along those lines. What's that? FDR in the wheelchair. Nobody could see him, right? If, if they would have had media back then, would they have elected somebody? That's true. I want to show you one more passage. It's run from Judges, which is a little bit to the left of where you are. Judges 3. Oh, and while you're turning there, let me tell you something. Tomorrow I would like to do, um, I, I have a couple things that I wanted to teach on, but I also wanted to do some Q&A. And so if you've got leadership issues, theological questions, ponderances, something that you wanted to discuss, we'll throw it open tomorrow for a period of time and we'll hash through some stuff at my discretion. All right? So just wanted to throw that out in case something's been bugging you. This is one of my absolute favorite stories in the Bible, Judges 3, about a guy named Ehud. Anybody know this story? Oh, get ready to live. All right. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took the possession of the city of Palms, which is another name for Jericho. I'm sorry. We're now in 14. I should have said we're starting in 12. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord after the fact. They always cry out after the fact. And he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjaminite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, what stood out to you in that passage just then? Left-handed man. This is irony. Does anybody know what Benjamin means? Yeah, son of the right hand, right? He is a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin, from the right hand. Okay, a little bit of irony there. It's like a white guy named Mr. Black or a black guy named Mr. White. It's just ironic that the name, by definition, is opposite of the reality. Okay? However, critical information. Why? Let's keep reading. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, quiet, and all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Gosh, Bible stories are cool. Then Ehud went out to the porch. Footnote there we'll look at later. 
He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. How cool is that story? All right, it's really gross. And also related to the previous one that I read. Why is it a big deal that Ehud is left-handed? Yeah. Yeah, most people are right-handed, and so there was the, the social system and structure set up that favored right-handed people. Yeah. Uh, back in cultures like that, you wiped with your left hand, so your left hand was considered a dirty thing. So people who were left-handed were considered like um, bad or disgusting or dirty. Absolutely. People um, still today in many cultures consider left-handed, using your left hand, especially around food or anything like that, to be very taboo because, like you said, you wiped with your left hand. So, brief note, when you were on your outreach little thing that I do when I go to another country, I just sit on my left hand when I'm eating. So I don't even think about bringing it up to the table. Just throwing that out, especially for people going to Thailand, China, those, those cultural norms still take place where touching food with your left hand is not always seen um, as a good thing to do. So tuck that one away in the back of your head. Okay, so now imagine, if you will, that you are a left-handed kid growing up, all right? And you get to junior high and you have toilet paper hand, and everybody calls you toilet paper hand, all right? Because everybody makes fun of people who have toilet paper hand as their predominant hand because they're left-handed people. And so this guy's been dealing with that for his entire life because it was a stigma. It was a, it was a socially looked-down-upon phenomenon that he was left-handed, okay? But he uses that weakness in everybody else's eyes as a strength, he fastens a sword to his right thigh. Now, this I know sounds ridiculous, but it's exactly how it happened, that when they searched people that were coming into the king's presence, they just sort of patted down this leg and patted down the outside of this leg because right-handed people draw their sword in a particular way, right? Mm -hmm. Across their body. So they just pat down the inside over here and probably the outside over here, but they didn't pat down the inside of the right leg because they weren't expecting somebody to be drawing with their left hand. So he's able to sneak a sword in. He's able to use this weakness, this socially whatever, to his advantage. Now, I mentioned that there was that footnote on that one verse. Did anybody jump down and read the footnote? What does it say? It, it was for the word porch. Yeah, the meaning of the Hebrew for this word is uncertain. Let me tell you what somebody, some commentators think that it might be. They think that um, 
it might be the word for basically bathroom. So here's this guy with toilet paper hands, right? Who everybody's been looking down on his entire life, who uses that to advantage to sneak a sword into the king's presence. But then this guy is willing to go out on the porch to get out through that way when he escapes from the, from the king's palace. Everybody following me there? Basically, he escapes through the sewer. So you have toilet paper hands who smells like toilet paper and, and other stuff who runs back. I can't imagine what the guy smells like it looks like. Runs back to Israel and says, hey, guys, follow me. We're going in and taking these guys. I just killed the king. All right? Why am I telling you this? I just told you that appearances do matter, yes. People do pay attention to the outward appearance. The thing that needs to be balanced with that is the scriptures say again and again and again and again and again that God will use anybody who is willing to give him his heart or her heart. Even toilet paper hands, somebody who's willing to go through the sewer in order to get the job done, that's who God's interested in using. And I needed to make sure that I balanced that lest you think that I thought that appearances mattered, which you wouldn't think because you've seen me before. All right. Is that fair? What's, um, let's, let, let's think deeply for just a moment because I, I like deep thinking. What would be an application of the idea that appearances actually matter in ministry? What would be an application of that? I'll take any thought. Yeah. Okay, when you go into a different culture, dress the way that they do. Absolutely. Another application. Yeah. Absolutely. If you're going to be working with people who have less means than you do, don't flaunt your means. Don't show off your wealth. Absolutely. What else? Absolutely. When you dress respectfully and nicely, people tend to treat you nicely and with respect. What else? Yeah, in, in certain... Because people judge by their appearances, somebody especially who has a shocking look, whatever that looks like in whatever culture, is perhaps going to be received differently than somebody who dresses more according to the norm. What else? What else about appearances in ministry make a difference? Okay. Absolutely. What you're doing, what people see you doing makes a considerable difference. How about here at the YWAM base? Aren't there some rules about appearances? Which are what? Yeah, modesty makes a difference, right? I mean, if you are showing up in a culture somewhere and being disrespectful of that culture's view of modesty, it's going to seriously affect your ministry. It's going to affect you know, the people who you're ministering with. Modesty makes a difference. Anything else? Smoking, those sorts of, yeah, those sorts of, you know, health habits, et cetera, that, um, 
you know, th th there are certain behaviors, habits, things that are that are looked down upon in some cultures that people will look and say, um, th they factor that in. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the scriptures say don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind to finish the verse. But we are in the world, so there's some level of conformity that makes some sense here, okay? I want to wrestle with this for just a second because you, you see this can get real complicated really quick. Because on the one hand, there need to be certain minimums with which we subscribe to where we say it is appropriate for us to check these boxes, right? I'm going to be modest, I'm gonna dress appropriately, I'm going to look nice, et cetera, et cetera. However, to spend every paycheck at fill in the blank, you know, whatever the, the, the newest, coolest place to, to buy clothes from is, might not be the best way to spend a paycheck. To spend, you know, to, to lavish extravagantly, you know, in an area that, that's not, you know, there, there, there's some lines where spending too much time on appearance can kind of, um, can kind of detract. How do you know, how do you know which, which side of that gray area you're on? How do you know if appearance means too much? How do you know if it doesn't mean enough? How do you know if you're where you want to be? What are you thinking? Anybody have any thoughts? Look around. Okay. Pay attention to how much time and effort. Mm -hmm. Free. Great word. Assess it. Absolutely. What's your motivation? What's your heart in the middle of the matter? Great thought. What else? How do you know whether you're spending too much or too little time? How do you know whether you're doing too much or too little? How do you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, have you ever thought about just giving a general check with somebody saying, hey, you know, where, where am I at? Am I doing too much? Am I doing too little? I mean, it, it's a somewhat embarrassing question that you're asking somebody like, hey, can you just give me quick feedback on my appearance? Do I spend too much time looking in the mirror? Do I spend too much time with my clothes? Does it look like I'm being, you know, some way or not? I mean, it matters, yes. It's a factor. It, it's something we could check in with, with other people. Yeah, Ian. If you look at what people are responding to about you, they're responding more about the way you look Absolutely. It's a great thought. I had a, I had a, a mentor tell me, and I and I and I followed him ever since then because I've I mean I've, I've spoken to a lot of people for a long time and you know I, you know check my face to make sure there's nothing hanging out of my nose and shave and do those sorts of things before I stand and speak in front of people, and this mentor of mine said, dress in such a way that nobody ever remembers anything about your dress. Make your appearance something that never comes to mind. Don't don't look in a way that people go oh. 
isn't that, you know, man, they're a great dresser, man, they're, you know, there's, um, there's this girl on our worship team and she dresses as conservatively as possible, but she is just extremely beautiful. Okay. Used to be a model. I mean, beautiful blonde girl, everything she wears. I mean, she dresses modestly, not flashy or anything. I guarantee the next Tuesday night, cause we meet on Tuesday night, some other girl in the crowd is going to be wearing that exact same thing because she's got just these little worshipers around her who worship her clothing and not her. It's just ticks me off because I know this girl does everything she can to do the opposite of that, to dress just very plainly, to not bring attention to herself, and yet and yet to dress nicely, you know, to not be distracting um, in, in how she dresses as she's leading worship. And um, I, I was talking to it, I, I, this mentor of mine, just it, it stuck in my head that um, he reminded me of the, uh, the movie Chicago, Mr. Cellophane, that, that same idea, right? Where, man, I've never thought at all about how you dress is sort of the response that you get from people, right? You always look nice. You always are very, I mean, especially for a guy. I've never thought at all. I think for a female, the average response is, no, you're always cute. You're always, you know, whatever. You dress extremely nicely, but it never would occur to me that you're spending too much time, that you're dressing too lavishly. I mean, that's the sort of response that we want to get from other people, right? Dare we check in every once in a while? Dare we ask roommates if we look in the mirror and spend too much time? Dare we, you know, dare we just say, do you have any thoughts on this? And especially when you're on your teams, man, double check with each other because when you're in another culture, you've got to just be thinking all the time. Let me, let me, make, uh, let me make one last comment um, just for intercultural stuff because it's obviously something that I'm interested in that I do. Watch very carefully people's body language in cultures. How close do they stand when they're talking to you? Who stands and who sits? I, I, I've been several places where, you know, guys are going to make a presentation. In America, you know, they stand up. And in other countries, they sit down when they're going to be presenting because it's, it's humble. When people accept something from you, do they accept it with one hand or with two? Almost most cultures besides ours will, you know, if you hand them something, they'll grab it with two as an honor of respect for the value of whatever it is that you're about to hand to them. There's so many little pieces of body language that make a difference. They're part of appearance. People look at the outward appearance. God may look at the heart. Your heart may be in the right place, but the appearance still matters. It still needs to be factored in. All right? Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts, like, if people have a passion for fashion or that yeah. industry, or, like, how do you find yourself like where it's like, am I thinking about this too much? Am I not, you know, kind of like, and just even people being like, I want my way of dress opening doors for people to talk to people, to me about Jesus or anything. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? I don't know. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, I think, yeah, it's, yeah, I want to hear it from you. Yeah. I, um, there are several people in my church that are um, professionals. It's in, in somewhere in showbiz. Let's just use that term very generically, that they're either models, they're photographers, they um, work in film, television. Several people from my high school graduating class. I got, we had 100 people graduate in my high school graduating class. 15 of them work for Hollywood. One of them, you've seen one of his movies before probably. It's like it, it was a very intense culture towards appearance that I grew up in. Um, and, and, I mean, these guys still, I just did one of their weddings, and I'm like, really, do we need, like, a stage hand for your wedding? Like, do we really need that? But we needed one. 
I did not allow makeup for myself. Um, but that was the sort of wedding that I was doing. There is, there's nothing wrong at all with being in that world and being in that industry and trying to even reach it for Christ. Absolutely nothing wrong. Somebody needs to. The, the one thing that I know from being involved with those people is that you cannot at the same time spend a lot of time worrying about your heart and worrying about your appearance. Spending time on one takes time away from the other. And frankly, most people in that world, who, especially non-Christians, have very, very small souls, very, very thin spirits. They, um, I mean, I know that's a terrible overgeneralization, and yet it's just true from my experience, it's my observation, that, um, that too many people in show business just don't really care at all about anything that I would consider to be important. And so I think this is completely a heart check thing. I think it's completely a finding the right friends thing. I think it's completely a, you know, you need to know where you sit with this and are comfortable with it and do it appropriately in the appropriate environments. And so look your best. Do, you know, do what it is that, that you're supposed to do and don't let it take away from other stuff. But, I mean, I think it's ultimately a between you and God and between you and the small community of people around you that holds you in check on that one. Because I, I think it's an incredibly difficult thing to do from my observation from the outside in for those people. It, I mean, that, I mean that's the, my answer is I don't really have a great answer because I think it's really hard. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. That you look nice. Yeah. So how do you reconcile that with them not remembering how you look? Yeah, that's a great question. If you dress nicely and somebody recognizes that, how do you reconcile them sort of forgetting at the same time that, you know, you appreciate the fact that they recognize it? Great question. I'm glad that you're pushing for clarity on that. Say thank you first when they compliment you because compliments should be thanked. Um, there's absolutely, I, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with even dressing nice enough that somebody would make a comment to say that you look very nice today, especially for females in the room. Please don't hear me any differently than that one. Look great. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. However, there's got to be in your head when you view other people, and so you need to translate this for your own head. When you look at other people and you say, gosh, she looks great, nice, presentable, you know, wh whatever that outfit is, cute, she's such a great dresser, that there's something to the effect of, she is well put together. Can I use that term? That that is a well put together lady. That, I mean, the scriptures applaud a well put together lady, even in uh, Proverbs 31, right? That's what that's about, a well put together lady. There's nothing wrong with being a well put together lady. Somehow, there is a line, a gray, fuzzy line between being a well put together lady and being too focused, obsessed, et cetera, on appearance. I have no idea. I have no idea where your heart crosses that line, but I know it first starts in your heart where you cross it. And I think that the way to sense that out would be in a community of people. So I'm so glad you asked for clarity. There's nothing wrong at all at people looking at you and saying, man, she's well put together. I really, you know, she dresses nicely, presents herself extremely well. I'm, I'm always impressed when people do that. And I love it when they do it with a level of modesty where they're not really drawing attention to themselves. They're just carrying themselves well. 
I love that. It just it kind of inspires me. Like, man, that's um, that's fantastic. Especially um, as, as women grow older and they just do it gracefully. They don't do it with with Botox and surgery, and they just carry themselves. I love I love seeing a sixty-something-year-old woman just carry herself so well. And I'm like, I wish every 18, 19, 20-something I know could see how incredibly beautiful this lady is and say, if you get what's beautiful about her at 60-something, then you'll get what's beautiful about beauty your entire life. And if you don't get what's beautiful about her, if you think it's all about this other stuff, then you've kind of missed it. So is that a fair answer? Okay. Yeah, let's do this real quick. Turn to Nehemiah. I'm totally changing gears, all right? but I really wanted to do this and I want to do some other stuff tomorrow and so we need to do Nehemiah today. Nehemiah is just before the wisdom literature. It's the, um, the last of the um, history books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs comes right after it. <clears throat> oh, we'll just kind of hover over Nehemiah here and you can have it open and I'll zoom in on some spots. Okay. Who can briefly tell me the story of Nehemiah? Why is the book in the scripture? What's going on? He built a wall. What did he do before he built a wall? Yeah, he was in the, he was in the, um, he was a high official in the court of Xerxes in the Persian court. Okay. He was a Jewish exile there. And while he was there, he found out that the walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed and they had been down for quite a while, all right? Now, the walls falling down doesn't mean that much to us, but in the ancient world, that's a lot like the power being out. I mean, you know the feeling how vulnerable you feel when the power's out? Like you can't do your life normally, that everything's kind of falling apart. That's what everybody felt like. And the power hadn't just been out for a couple of days, the power had been out for decades. And so they're existing without power. They're existing without walls for decades. And he hears this. He hears that the walls have been destroyed. And he says, I want to go back and fix that. And so he goes to Artaxerxes. And he says, King, you're awesome. I'd like to go back. And there's, if you ever want to do a study on how to, how to carry out a life of prayer in everyday life, Nehemiah is a great example. There's so many just little prayers that he does. Like, let me give you a quick example. Like, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, let me go back up to the, the end of verse 2. He says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Did he pray out loud? No, he just, before he answers the king, before he puts his life on the line to ask the king to go back and rebuild the walls of a captured city, he just quickly prays and he says, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. And there is brilliant politics going on here. He doesn't use the word Jerusalem, which would have built up a little bit of ire and reaction probably from the king. He butters him up, you know, like, Oh, live forever. Hey, if I found favor in your eyes, he's an excellent leader. Absolutely fantastic. But then look what he does. Verse 11, chapter 2. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. That night I went out to the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem. What is he doing? The leadership principle. Assessment. Assessment. 
Yes. He doesn't show up and start talking. He doesn't show up and start casting a vision. He assesses, assess, assess, assess. Okay. Builders of the wall. This is what I wanted to get to, all right? I think this is one of the most fantastic ideas of calling that you'll ever understand. If you get chapter three, you get calling in a way that most people don't. The, uh, the NIV has over mine, builders of the wall, okay? Elisha, the high priest, and his fellow priests went down to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far from the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. Then the men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of E, I, built next to him. I'm just going to abbreviate because I can't pronounce these names. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of H. They laid its beams and put the doors on the bolts and bars in its place. M, son of U, the son of H, repaired the next section. Next to him was M, son of B, the son of M, made repairs. Next to him, Z, son of B, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of T, and their nobles would not put their shoulders to work under their supervisors. Then the J gate was repaired by J, son of P, and M, son of B. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs was made by men from Gibeah and Mizpah. And M of G and J of M placed under the authority of the governors of the trans-Euphrates. U, son of H, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And H, one of the perfumers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. R, son of H, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, J, son of H, made repairs opposite his house, and H, son of H, made repairs next to him. M, son of H, and H, son of PM, repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. S, son of H, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired this section next to him with the help of his daughters. This is incredibly boring. Stick with it. The boring sections are sometimes the most interesting. The valley gate was repaired by H and the residents of Z. They rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. They also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the dung gate. The dung, guess what gets carried out? The dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by M, son of R, ruler of the district of BH. He rebuilt it and put doors and bolts and bars in place. The, the fountain gate was repaired by S, son of CH, ruler of the districts of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it, and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden, as far down as the steps go down from the city of David. Beyond him, in son of A, ruler of the Hastrath district of BZ, made up repairs to the point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool of the houses of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites, under, Rehobo, or under R, son of B. Beside him, H, ruler of the district of K, carried out repairs for his district. Next to him, repairs were made by the countrymen under B, son of H, ruler of the other half district of K. Next to him, Azer, son of J, ruler of M, repaired another section from the point facing the ascent of the armory as far as the next angle. Next to him, B, son of Z, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of E, the high priest. Next to him, M, son of U, the son of H, repaired another section from the entrance of E to the end, uh, E's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, B and H made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, A, son of M, the son of A, made repairs besides his house. 
Next to him, B, son of H, repaired another section from A to the angle down to the corner. And P, son of U, worked on the opposite angle of the tower, projecting near the palace, near the court of the guard. Next to him, P, son of P, and the temple servants living in the hill of Ophel made repairs up to the point where the water gate towards the east projecting tower. Next to them, the men of T repaired another section from the great projecting tower of the wall of Ophel. And from the horse gate, the priest made repairs each in front of his own house. Next to them, Z, son of I, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, S, son of S, the guard of the east gate made repairs. Next to him, H, son of S, and H, the sixth son of Z, repaired another section. Next to him, M, son of B, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, M, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner and between the room of the corner of the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. Oh my goodness, that was tedious. What sort of people made repairs to the walls? Priests? Who? Goldsmiths? Perfume makers was one. What else? What's that? Rulers. Where did most people listed make repairs? By their house was a repeated refrain. Any, any other place that they made repairs? Gates. Okay. Let me give you a leadership secret from what's going on here. And it has everything to do with calling, which I know is something everybody I know wrestles with. Most people made repairs in front of or next to their house. Yes? Why is that the easiest place to ask people to repair a defensive structure? Yeah. Because if the rest of the wall's gonna get repaired, but the spot right in front of my house isn't, guess where everybody's invading and burning, right? When it comes to calling in life, when it comes to understanding what God wants you to do, most of the time he wants you to simply work right in front of your house, right in front of where you are. Too often we think that calling is only exotic, it's only to Mozambique, it's only to some far off whatever. A lot of times it's just in front of your house, it's just doing the very next thing in front of where you live. Now, heck of a lot of you guys want to go into missions and I want to encourage you to do that and I don't want, I don't want you to hear for a second that I'm taking away from that. I want you to remember 10 years from now when you're doing and wondering what's the next thing, look right in front of you. What, what is exactly directly in front of you and your house at that point and what might God want you to do there, okay? Who were the categories of people who did repairs? Priests, goldsmiths, leaders, yes? There was one perfume maker thrown in there. The daughters of people as well, absolutely. I want to get the daughters in there. I don't want to leave the ladies out. Um, who would be the easiest sort of people for a leader to convince to help? Goldsmiths, people with expertise, right? They're craftsmen. Can you use your craft, can you use your specialty and carry out this cause for God, right? Who else? Why would priests be easy to convince? Because they're like on fire, passionate followers of God, right? Why would leaders of the city be easy to convince? Because they should be servants? Because why else? 
It's the city they're leading. They've got a huge stake in what's going on there. When you, when you have a job to do, just target easy people. Target people who are already going to be passionate about it. Target people who have a high stake in what's going on. Target people who are gifted and know what they're doing. Yes? Put your team together like that as often as you can. If God calls you to get a difficult person on your team, bummer. But otherwise, just go after easy people. Nehemiah uses these guys who are zealous about what they're doing, who are already natural leaders and have a high stake, and even people who are experts and calls them in to do it. That's just good leadership. I think we're done. We read some pretty boring scripture there. Way to hang, guys. Thanks. All right. See you later. 1.30 back here. If you have not ordered a uh, T-shirt, go talk to Ryan. <laughs>